Okay, so you have heard about College Kyle, right? I've talked about College Kyle a couple weeks, and you know, not the best, <laughs> not the wisest young man. But now we're going further back. We're going to high school Kyle. Whenever I was a senior in high school, there was this sort of charity fundraiser that was a competition for senior guys, and it took about 10 or 12 guys together, and they would compete to win the crown of Mr. Liberty. And Liberty is the high school I went to, so that's why it's called that. And in this competition, there are all sorts of, you know, whatever things, like doing a dance choreography routine with a bunch of awkward, clunky senior guys, which that was a pretty funny sight to see. But they also had a talent portion of this competition. And I was really looking forward to this talent portion because many of you may not know this, but I used to be a rapper. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm, I'm not talking like Christmas wrapping paper. I'm talking like involving music rapper. And I'm, I'm not kidding, I, I wrote like 100 plus songs. And there was one point in my life that I was the number 19 best rapper in Kansas City. Because, hey, because we, don't clap for that. <laughs> because we all know how fierce the competition is in Kansas City for rapping, right? Um, but, but at this point, <laughs> I was like, oh, this is going to be the time when my career launches because this is the first time that I ever would have performed for somebody in front of people, like for a live scene. And around the peak of my rap prominence, around whenever I was like 19, right, I was like, okay, this is going to be it. This is going to be the talent portion. People are going to see this gift. They're going to start downloading all my stuff. It's just going to be this launching point for my future success. So I, I write this song. It's super witty. It's funny. It's directed to the judges talking about why they should pick me to win, basically. And I practice it, and I practice it, and I practice it. I rehearse it. I have it memorized so, so well. So I come out onto the stage and get up to the mic. I got full confidence. Everything's going great. I remember the first two lines, and then I totally blank on everything else. And this was like a four-minute song. <laughs> so I'm, I'm hit with this panic moment right after saying the first two lines. And I was just like, okay, I can either tell the person to stop the song, start over, and I just pull out my lyrics on my phone, or I just freestyle and make it up as I go. I went with that one. <laughs> and this is not one of those moments where like a rapper totally impresses you with their ability to just off the cuff do stuff. No, no, no. Quite the opposite. This was one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. <laughs> because I was running out of content. I, at one point I just started rapping about the size and structure of my nose. Like it was just really, really bad. And afterwards, I felt about this big. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is going to be my moment. This is going to be the time that everybody's going to see this, this gift. I didn't want to go to school the next day. I was like, I didn't want people looking at me and being like, oh, there's that dingus kid that messed up, all his, uh, messed up all his lyrics. 
So I, I kind of had a low profile <laughs> for a little bit, but unfortunately, it did not launch my rap career. Maybe it started the other trajectory uh, towards getting out of it. But I think all of us have moments like that where we do or say something that we are totally embarrassed by. Like sometimes whenever you say something and you're like, I wish I could immediately pull that back into my mouth. <laughs> because you do not want to do that, but once you do, that mistake is out there for the world to see. And oftentimes whenever we make a mistake or if something bad happens to us, we can start internalizing it and believing a lie about ourselves. That it's not enough for me just to acknowledge that you know, I made a mistake or this bad thing happened to me, we start to strap it to our identity. Something that defines who we are. This is what we know is shame. And shame is different than guilt because I believe guilt can be a helpful thing. The Holy Spirit convicts us, shows us areas that we were wrong, areas we need to change. So guilt looks more like saying, I cheated. Shame is saying, I'm a cheater. That might seem like a small distinction to you, but that is actually a very big one. Because shame is purely destructive. Nothing good comes from shame. Brene Brown, she mentions that shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something that we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. And I believe that that painful feeling that she's talking about, it gets magnified whenever that thing that we are ashamed of is public, when everybody knows about it, whenever it feels like it forever taints your reputation, that every time someone looks at you, they don't really see you, they see that thing that happened, or they see that thing that you did. And it's really hard to recover from that. It's really challenging to even want to get out of bed speaking from experience. So how do you recover from a broken reputation? How do we conquer the shame that we feel? Turn with me to Acts. We've been going through a series on the book of Acts called Church on Fire, looking at how spirit-empowered people took the good news of Jesus and spread it to the world. And today, we're gonna talk about a guy in the book of Acts named Saul, also known as Paul. And he was likely given both of these names at birth. One is his Jewish name, which is Saul, and one is his Roman name, which is Paulus or Paul. So it makes sense whenever he becomes the minister to the Gentiles, that's what he becomes more referred to as, as Paul. So the first place that Saul is mentioned is in Acts 7. As the crowd was about to stone Stephen to death, we read of this at the end of the chapter, that those who were going to stone Stephen laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And that expression of laying something down at the feet of somebody normally denotes a, a level of leadership. So Paul likely had an active hand, a leading role in the stoning of Stephen. And then the next chapter near the beginning, we read this, Acts 8 verse 3. It says, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Paul is actively persecuting the church. He's trying to destroy it. I mean, he is a zealous Pharisee that does not want anybody to believe in Jesus. And he is trying to silence that by whatever means necessary. But God had other plans for Saul's life. 
In Acts 9, beginning in verse 1, this is where we'll spend most of our time in this chapter. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He was trying to kill the disciples of Jesus, in other words. And he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, which the way is just in the earliest times of Christianity, that's how Christianity was referred to, or what it was referred to as, is the way. So cute Mandalorian references. Um, but whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So Saul gets this very direct vision from Jesus to change what he's doing. And then the Lord calls Ananias, a disciple who's in that area. In verse 11, it says, The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask, him, or ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has... Uh, or in, in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So Jesus gives Paul a little bit of a vision or a warning that someone named Ananias is going to come to him. And then it says in verse 13, Lord, and this is Ananias' response, I've heard a lot of reports about this man and all the harm that he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. So in other words, he's like, Jesus, are you sure? Are you sure it's this Saul? Because we know there are probably a lot of other Saul's running around. Could it be another one by chance? Because Paul has earned quite the reputation at this point in his life. And listen to what future Paul says about this time period, Paul. In Acts 26, verse 9, Paul recalls about himself, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and they were put to death. Or when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. The Christian hunter. That was Paul's reputation. That's what he was known for. So rightly, right, Ananias in this situation, he is terrified of this guy. And now in verse 15, here's the Lord's response to Ananias. Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Which this is a reminder, right? If Paul the Christian murderer can have a special commission from Jesus to do something great, how much more can we? How much more can God work through our lives? So Ananias, he demonstrates a very deep level of trust and faith in Christ to then go <laughs> to Saul in the first place whenever he's probably terrified of him. And then he prays for Saul and lays hands on him. Saul receives the spirit, scales fall from his eyes, and he's then baptized and what's fascinating is this zealous Christian hunter is now the very thing that he was hunting. And this creates a lot of problems for Paul. Uh, in verse 19, it says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. 
At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Which, yeah, remember, that is why Saul's coming to Damascus, right? He's trying to hunt Christians. <laughs> but, but this is so fresh that on the way that he's doing that, <laughs> Jesus changes his mind about all of it with this vision. And then now he is in these very synagogues preaching in the name of Jesus. Talk about a 180. And in verse 22 it says, Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. My oh my, how the turntables, right? Because in this situation, this Jewish persecutor is now being persecuted by the Jews. It's a very different situation for Paul. Or Saul, either way. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers, which means people he converted, took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in a wall, which that does not sound very fun. But this is just a reminder, too, thinking about Saul in this situation. He probably doesn't have a lot of great community, but Jesus is so kind in that immediately after following Christ and bringing people to Jesus, Jesus gives him new community that helps take care of him in this moment. And then in verse 26, it says, When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not really believing that he was a disciple. Think about how hard life has to be for Saul right here. Right? The people that love you, your Jewish brothers and sisters, now hate you and want to kill you. But the group that you have now converted to still sees you as the Christian murderer, as the one who is totally against us, as the one who hunted us down. So he's in this situation where he doesn't really have many places to turn to. And understandably so on the Christian side of things, them being hesitant of this guy. Like, I'm sure if you see him in, in your midst with this reputation, you're like, he's not really here for Jesus. He's probably just a spy trying to catch us in something we're doing. Oh, and also, fun thing for Paul, too, he just became the scape scapegoat for all kinds of rumors. So if that's ever happened with you, then you can relate to this. In Acts 21, as Paul's making more and more people mad, there's this really funny situation where a soldier asks Paul, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Like, what? <laughs> where did that come from? No, that's not me. But, like, he just gets stuff thrown to him because he becomes this scapegoat. And then in verse 27 of back to Acts 9, luckily he has a great wingman in Barnabas. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And from that point on, Saul began to start building and rebuilding a new reputation. But for the rest of his life, he had to live with the evil that he had done. And we know from his own writings that he had to have experienced shame in different ways. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, this is what he says about himself. For I am the least of the apostles. That's that language of shame, right? I am. 
and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I'm the worst. I shouldn't even be here. Other places he calls himself the chief of sinners. Other places he calls himself a wretched man. And I wonder if at night, whenever he's trying to fall asleep, he plays through in his mind that image of all the robes being cast at his feet as Stephen was being stoned. And the part that he had in that. I wonder if at night he would replay those moments whenever Christians were on trial and he cast a vote against them. I wonder if he went through some of those shame cycles. And I'm sure it doesn't help that whenever he would come into Christian circles, the first thing that they would think about is his past, his reputation. And every time that that happens, I'm sure it just keeps bringing up a wave of all that stuff that I've done in my past. So how does Paul deal with this? How does Paul deal with shame? I want you to know I intentionally stopped that 1 Corinthians passage where I did because the next verse uh, kind of explains it. He says, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am who I am. That's powerful. The transformative power of God's grace has given him a new identity. A new reputation. He is not who he was. And if anybody, anybody had the authority... To say or believe that, it would be this specific Christian murderer. And what's amazing is that in his writings, you can tell that he truly believed it. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Romans 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Who we were, our false self, those shame identities that we keep speaking over ourselves, those are crucified. Those are done away with. And we have a new identity in Christ. But church, I know this is true for me sometimes, and I'm sure it's true for a lot of y'all too, that we still like to be a slave to the shame that we feel. Even though Christ has set us free, we still like to believe those lies about ourselves. We love to let the lies of shame exist in our hearts. And whenever we close our eyes at night, it may not be the robes or casting a vote against somebody, but whatever that, that shameful thing in your life, that experience that thing that you did that keeps you up at night. That's really hard to swallow that you've done. We, we replay that and then we start letting all that negative self-talk shower over us and shame us. But church, we're free. Shame does not have to rule us anymore. Our bad reputation is not our reputation anymore, at least for the one perspective that counts. Romans 8 verses 14 through 17 shows us our new identity. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again or live in shame again or whatever thing that we keep coming back to. The Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by Him 
we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We might testify all kinds of shameful things about ourselves. And we, we have done that. It might be the narrative that I am not good enough. I am not worthy of anything. I am not valuable. I am not worthy of being loved. Whatever that identity of shame that we keep saying over ourselves, but the Spirit of God is saying, no, that's not who you are. You are a child of God. That is our identity and reputation. And until we find our identity in Christ, and until we truly believe that identity, we will remain a slave to the shame that we feel. The only way to heal from shame is to move our focus off of these false identities, these false narratives we say about ourselves, and to something outside of ourselves, namely Christ. And one of the lies that I have believed about myself is I'm a failure, that I am not good enough, that my life has just sort of come with this measuring stick all the time. So whenever I do things well and I feel like I'm doing better than other people, I feel great about myself. But whenever I feel like I'm starting to dip behind and I'm not as good as other people, I'm crushed. So I would compare myself with my friends and their grades. I would compare myself with my friends and my athleticism. And even in more recent years, comparing my preaching with other people. And I know there were times where I would preach and I would stop and I'd be like, man, that bombed. That was absolutely terrible. And then I start believing these lies about myself, that I'm not cut out for this. I'm not worthy to be in this position. I don't have the gifting or skill set for this. And then it doesn't help whenever you feel like you've bombed. And then you get hit with a handful of people come up afterwards and be like, yeah, I probably wouldn't have said that. Or, yeah, definitely don't do that next time. Or something like that. Whenever that gets reinforced by someone else, it is crippling. There was a season of my life that I was not very kind to myself. I almost threw in the towel for ministry. I really didn't think that this was going to be my thing. I doubted my calling. I doubted God. I felt so small. I felt defeated. And in this season, I realized <clears throat> how much shame I still had in myself. I realized how much I still care about other people's approval. But the Lord, the Lord is so kind. In my desperation, I reached out to Jesus. And I asked him what he thought of me. And Jesus showed me my worth. He showed me I truly am a child of God. And all these things that I'm living for, the approval of other people, what I find my worth in, doesn't matter. What matters is what he thinks of me. That is the only thing that matters. 
And it was in this moment, in this season, the one that I thought was the worst season ever, that I was so low, that was so terrible, that actually ended up being the best season that could have ever happened to me. Because in this process, I learned and finally learned and believed that my identity is in Jesus fully and completely. It's not based upon my performance. It's based upon the love that God has for me. And whenever you come to believe that, it changes everything in your life. Every single thing. And I now see that this season was God refining me. It's not that he was whispering in people's ears to be mean to me, but he certainly allowed it to happen. And I believe he was helping me learn who I really am. And he was helping me become far more resilient for all the things that are ahead of me in ministry. Because now, because I know my identity in Jesus, it's like a shower head that is constantly washing me, constantly cleansing my body. So whenever people come up and criticize me or say really negative things against me, what I'll do is I'll listen to it, I'll take the feedback, and then it just washes right off. Whenever someone comes up and insults me and specifically targets me in some personal way, it doesn't stick to me anymore. It just washes right off because I know who I am. And I, I don't want this to sound offensive to y'all if you want it to get to me, but nothing you say is going to get to me <laughs> because I know who I am in Jesus. And all that stuff is just going to wash off because the one perspective that matters is what I'm listening to. God took this incredibly hard part of my life when I felt so broken. He picked up the pieces, put it back together, and I am stronger than ever. And this all makes me think of uh, the Japanese art form called kintsugi. I don't know if you've heard of this or not. But what they do is they take a broken vessel and they put all the pieces back together with this liquid solution that includes like gold dust or silver dust. And what happens is whatever the cost, whatever the worth of that vessel was previously, after this process, it becomes far more valuable than it ever was. And then the philosophy behind this is that breaks, brokenness is not something to hide. It's something that's actually beautiful. And I know it's easy for us to get frustrated whenever things go bad in our own lives. And I know how terrible shame cycles feel. I know the feeling of everyone looking at you and thinking like, oh, they're thinking really badly of me and judging me. But going through the brokenness to experience the redemptive and healing work of the Holy Spirit is so worth it, in my opinion. In our brokenness, in our weakness, the power of God is displayed even greater, or as Jesus tells Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Weakness is not something to hide. Weakness is something to boast in. Not, not like saying, woohoo, I, I am a great sinner. But it's important for us to be real with each other. And what's amazing is in this brokenness, God is healing us. And it becomes a testament to his own power. 
And through each hardship, through each battle with shame and the lies that we entertain about ourselves, God is taking our brokenness and turning us into beautiful and powerful masterpieces. God believes in the power of redemption. And in my own life, I believe it too. And one of the coolest things about God is that as our story is redeemed by him, our mess becomes our message. The stuff that Satan has used to destroy you and take you out of the fight. What the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good. God is able to take this brokenness, this stuff that was supposed to completely sideline us, and now we're able to take that and do something amazing for his kingdom. That's powerful. And that's the work of God. That is redemption at work. So I want to close this morning with this. I want to invite you all, and, and y'all know if there's a, a shameful thing that is a trigger for you, then you know if it's good or for you to not to go into that. Um, and I always encourage professional help, but if you're comfortable with this today, I want to do a little practice that Jesus did on me. <laughs> so uh, if you're comfortable, go ahead and close your eyes. And let Jesus speak into your shame. Let Jesus speak into that lie that you believe about yourself. So Jesus, I ask in our hearts, help us identify what is a lie that we are believing about who we are. pray that we identify that, that we name that so it doesn't have power over us anymore. And Jesus, I ask in, in each of our hearts, what do you think of that lie? What do you want to do with that lie? What is the truth that you are speaking over us today? pray that this morning that we as a church, we do not believe these false narratives about us. We don't believe these lies about ourselves. That we don't see ourselves as unworthy or a failure or a mistake or unworthy of love and connection. Jesus, show us the reputation that you have for us. One of grace. <laughs> One of walking into a new identity, knowing who we are, that we are children of God, and there's nothing that changes that. Lord, help us know today that we are loved, that we are cherished. That we are seen. And most importantly, Lord, help us with full confidence today full confidence to believe that we are children of God, that we walk out of here with that shower head, that nothing that anybody's going to say to us, that our bosses say, that our peers say, whoever, that nothing that people say to us is going to stick to us because we know who we are. Not in a, a cocky sort of way, 
but in a confidence that comes from you. I pray that you help us always listen to people. Help us to know in our bones, every fiber of our being, that we are your children. And that changes everything. Help us listen only to the perspective that counts. And help us to live faithful lives to you, Lord. I pray this in your name. Amen.